All right, Mercy Hill, you can take out a Bible. Turn with me to Psalm 120. Psalm 120. We're in a series entitled Time, How Gospel Identity Changes Everything We Do. And we just started last week looking at the Psalms of Ascent. That's Psalms 120 through 134. Fifteen Psalms or songs, if you will, that were sung by the Jews as they went up to Jerusalem, as they went up three times a year for festivals. They would go up for the Day of Atonement, for Passover, for Pentecost. And you may ask, why are we studying songs? Why aren't we singing them? Why are we studying them? And and how do they connect to what we do? Because that's the name of the series, Time, How Our Gospel Identity Changes Everything We Do. And so the fact that Jesus has redeemed us and called us to be a covenant people and a family who are on mission should change everything that we do. But many times we get lost in how life fits together, this life in the kingdom, with the life we find ourselves in in the culture that surrounds us. So um, let me, if I can, explain it this way using an illustration. We have a proclivity to try to take our lives and fit our lives into boxes, if you will. We have a work box and a family box and a hobby box, a box that our friends are in, a box that is church, and a box that is our dreams. And we keep life separated in order to try to keep things nice and tidy. And so when you're at work, you don't necessarily talk about your church friends with your work friends because they're at work, right? And if we talked with a lot of Christians and asked them to explain how God is at work in each of those boxes that they've used to arrange their lives, most Christians would say, well, I'm at work. I just go to work. And I try to keep my head down and get out of there by the end of the day. What does God have to do with my work box? Or when it comes to family, we might say, I'm just feeding the kids dinner and bathing them and trying to get them in bed at a decent hour and keep my sanity. What does God have to do with bathing and feeding the kids? Or what does God have to do with helping the kids with homework or with the piles of laundry that need to be done? Or the piles of laundry that are done but yet never get folded? What does God have to do with any of that stuff? Or for people who would look at their friend's box, they might say, I'm just going on a date. It's nothing spiritual. It's just a date. What does God have to do with my friend's box or hobbies? It's just what I do on the weekends. Why do you got to make everything about religion? Can't we just have a little fun? It's just a hobby. And the truth of the matter is that, that God has redeemed us and that He wants to infiltrate every aspect and every fiber of our lives. And the Scriptures show us that Jesus never made that kind of separation. He didn't live life in boxes. He used ordinary people and places and illustrations in order to teach really powerful spiritual lessons. Jesus would use things like storms or fish and loaves or coins. 
and Jesus left us and he said it was better that he would go. And he left us with the Holy Spirit who came and has invaded all of our life. And the Holy Spirit brings the gospel to bear in our relationships, our finances, our hobbies, our work, and every part of life. So today, um, and over the next several weeks through the end of this year, we're going to uncover how the gospel is brought to bear on our relationships, on our time, uh, on our work, on the joy that we have or that we don't have, on what it means to bless others and be a blessing. But today, we're going to study a psalm that points to our need for Jesus. I've entitled it, Uncovering the Lie. And this psalm is really the key that unlocks the door to many of the other psalms of ascent. If you don't understand this psalm, then you will struggle to really rearrange your life and get out of the boxes that you many times live by. Psalm 120 reminds us that all is not right with the world. So let's read it together. And then I want to share a little bit more and we'll dig in verse by verse. Psalm 120. The psalmist writes and he says, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. That is a summary of the psalm. Don't, don't uh, miss verse 1. You can underline verse 1. And many times in Hebrew thought you have to move backwards or sometimes within Hebrew thought you'll see that there's a summary and then there's an unfolding of what took place. So don't miss out on verse 1 is the summary of what's taking place. And now he's going to unpack what actually has happened in some of his thinking. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We're going to unpack this and, and make some sense of what this psalmist is saying. But a big summary of what the psalmist is saying in Psalms 120 is he is reminding us that all is not right with the world. The song offers us a warning not to buy into the lie that the boxes that we try to sort our life into, that any of those boxes can satisfy. And this psalm goes even deeper because we're taught at a really early age that stuff doesn't satisfy, that things are not important, and that things created things shouldn't be worshipped. And so we learn early on that you know, birthday presents and Christmas presents, they kind of wear out. Like, that's a truth we're taught. We don't learn it. That's why some of you want the iPhone 7. They're really not that much different than the 6, other than they took the headphone jack out, so you're usually getting less. But you still want it, right? So we still buy into the lie, but we know the truth that it'll get old that there will be something better. But this psalm is, is teaching even something deeper. 
We're taught from an early age that stuff doesn't satisfy, that it, that it isn't worthy to be worshipped. But we oftentimes try to avoid the harsh and the painful reality that the world itself is not a good place. We try to avoid the reality that this world that we live in is not a good place. And it's not getting better. People aren't basically nice and good. That's what we've been taught as as kids growing up. People are basically nice and good. And this psalm is a call for the Christian to understand that the world we live in is not our home. That everyone isn't born equal and innocent and self-sufficient. That we aren't free. And that we're not born free. We're born hindered by sin. We're born entangled with wicked hearts. And uh, there's a phrase that oftentimes has bothered me. And uh, maybe you've uttered it before or you've heard other people utter it. But this psalm flies in the face of this phrase. It goes like this. You've helped me to restore my faith in humanity. This psalm flies in the face of putting your faith in humanity. And the psalmist is crying out and he's saying, No, don't put your faith in humanity. Don't put your faith in the boxes in which you've tried to arrange your life according to. Instead, look for a Savior. Psalm 120 is a cry and a warning. Don't put your faith in humanity. Cry out and depend on God's grace. And on God's judgment. Don't trust in the next election to eliminate crime or establish justice. It's not going to happen. Don't trust in the next scientific breakthrough to save the environment. Or your next pay raise to push you over the precipice of financial anxiety. And finally into financial freedom. Don't do it. Psalm 120 is a call for us in the words of Eugene Peterson, to get fed up with the ways of the world in order that we might acquire an appetite for the world of grace. It's only when we understand the struggle of Psalm 120 and the cry for help that we begin to develop an appetite for faith and that we make room for faith in our lives. Look in verse 1. The psalmist cries out and he says, In my distress I called to the Lord. There's a rawness about this psalm. The psalmist is in distress. And and I love the fact that he's willing to share uh, his emotions here. Uh, There's no need to pull it all together before crying out to God. He says, in the middle of my distress, I cried out to God. And I think that there's a lot from the very beginning that as Christians and as maybe some folks who you're not quite there yet with God, but you're, you're curious, you're interested there's something that each of us can learn about the rawness of this psalm. That there's no need for us to, to pull it together. So oftentimes our pride and our sin keeps us from crying out to God. So oftentimes we uh, feel as if we need to pull our lives together before we can attend church or before we can approach God. But that's not the case for the psalmist. It, This pride that's within us, it shows up in so many different ways that we feel as if we can somehow make ourselves clean before God instead of going to Him. 
And you see that pride that exists in all of us. It was the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. It was the very first sin, pride, that hindered Adam and Eve's relationship with God, that they said, I will be my own God. And it was their pride. And that same pride keeps us from going to God and willingly uh, falling on Him. And it shows up in so many little ways. It shows up in me not wanting to ask for directions. No, I'll figure it out. I don't need to read the directions. I don't need help. It shows up in our lives when someone says, How are you doing? And your constant answer is, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Have you ever known anyone like that? I had a friend who said, Fine stands for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. I'm fine. The psalmist cries out because he's not fine. And he says, In my distress, I called to the Lord. His distress here is literally, it refers to, it literally means a closed or confined space. He felt like a caged or a trapped animal. He couldn't flee or fight. He was in a state of complete and utter helplessness. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever felt like, I am just stuck in helplessness. There is nothing that I can do. That's where the psalmist finds himself. This is a harsh song. It's not a love song. It's not a romantic song. It's a very harsh song. It begins with trouble and it ends with war in a sense. And this is the reality of life. That life isn't neat. That no matter how often you iron your clothes or or vacuum the rug or try to keep your things tidy, are you one of those people that when life gets out of control, you at least can clean? Do you know anyone like that? It's like, my life may be spinning out of control, but this car is going to be cleaner. This desk is going to be cleaner. My life may be crazy, but this this carpet, dadgummit, it's going to get vacuumed. Every day, maybe twice a day, because I'm going to feel better about something. If I can't control that, well, I'm going to control this. Have you ever known anyone like that? I kind of had a lot of illustrations there. Maybe that's a little bit of me. Um, But the truth of the matter is this. This is what the psalmist is trying to, to get us to understand, that this is the reality of life, that life is difficult, and I wrote, I wrote the illustration down in my notes like this. I'm just going to read it. We enter this world pooping our pants, and many of us will unfortunately leave the world in the same fashion. And we don't think about life like that. Because in between, we're tempted to believe that life can be tidied up, that we're self-sufficient, but the fact is we're not. And for those who aren't self-sufficient, then we choose to believe and buy into the lie that society around us and the people that make up planet Earth can offer us peace and love and happiness and that we'll all be fine if we can just all learn to get along. But unfortunately, Rodney King has taught us that for thousands and thousands of years, we've had practice and we are not able to get along. That something is broken in our world. And this psalm begins at that awkward place of dissatisfaction. 
yet with a longing for peace and for truth, a type of pilgrimage toward God, a hopelessness, but yet the sense that all hope is not lost. Because it's only when we become completely dissatisfied with the world and completely fed up and disgusted with the world's ability to make peace and to save us, it's only then that we finally become open to the mystery of the world of grace. That we make room in our life for God. That we look and we say, maybe this election isn't going to solve all our trouble. And maybe the struggle that we have between policemen and women and those who are in the streets, maybe there's something deeper than even the sin of racism. That there is something that only God's peace can provide and can offer. The psalmist says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. In verse 2 he says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? This has to be one of the worst circumstances that, as an individual that you can find yourself in. It seems as if the psalmist is saying that he is being framed, that he is being talked about, that he is in a place in which he has been blamed for some things and he doesn't have the opportunity to come back and give a response. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Think about someone who's going through maybe a, a divorce and it's got to be just a, a stomach-turning type of what are other people thinking about me and what is my ex saying about me and how can I share my testimony but yet a feeling of helplessness? You know, in grade school we grew up and mom and dads, they taught us this little phrase, sticks and stones may break our bones but words will never hurt us. I think moms and dads are trying to use a little reverse psychology on us because that phrase doesn't really work. The truth of the matter is sticks and stones may break your bones but bruises and bones will heal words seem to have this way of kind of settling into our heart and our souls, and sometimes they stick with us for weeks and years and even a lifetime. Words are really powerful. Words will hurt us. And for the psalmist, he has a, he's really saying, I'd be better off if I had a physical enemy who was aggressively approaching me. That'd be easier because I would at least have the ability to, to combat in such a way. But instead, he's facing an enemy and the deceit and the lies, and there's nowhere he can turn. He's frozen. He can't fight. He can't flee. He is simply frozen. He is hopeless. He is tempted with despair. And most likely, the psalmist is writing maybe from a place of exile from outside of Jerusalem. And he's, he's looking and he's writing with this almost sense of hopelessness. And for each of us, I think we can identify an awful lot with Psalm 120. I've had a lot of different conversations with people as they talk about America. They may, maybe they talk about the church in America. And they talk about how... You know, even though we planted over a thousand megachurches in the 90s, we continued to see uh, the church population in decline, and that's continued. 
uh, throughout 2000, 2010, and now we're in 2016, and it doesn't seem as if things are turning around. And it's so easy to become hopeless with those who are doing the hard work of ministry. And, and, and then I talk with people who are, who are struggling with race relations and with uh, all the news and the media and the way in which the news seems to twist and to turn stories. And we look at our society and we wonder, is there hope? And then we turn on the radio and once again we hear of political candidates and of lies and, and of just all types of uncertainty. And we're at a place in which we look around us and we see and we ask the question, is there peace anywhere? Is there not war at every corner? Are things getting better? Are they on the decline? And the psalmist reminds us that our hope is in a Savior. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the one who is to come. Because he has not abandoned us. And the psalmist, he trusts in the judgment of God as he looks and and works through this. Look at uh, verses 4 through 7 as the psalmist ends. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, what in the world is he talking about? A broom tree. Well, the wood of the broom tree was actually used to make charcoal. It was excellent charcoal because it burned hot. It would keep a fire really hot and it would retain its heat for a long time. Now, as you look at what the psalmist is saying here, he's saying, I was in distress I was in this place of hopelessness. I felt as if there was nowhere I could turn. I couldn't fight. I couldn't flee. I was just frozen. And I called out to the Lord. But he says, the Lord answered me. And then he unfolds. He says that I'm amongst his people with lying lips, with a deceitful tongue. I'm amongst his evil people. And he says, what shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? And then he gives this illustration of a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Is he saying that that's what these deceitful people's words are like? Maybe. The tongue is so powerful. James compares the tongue to uh, a bridle in a horse's mouth that that powerfully controls that that huge beast or a rudder on a ship, a very small um, part of the ship, but yet it controls the direction of the entire ship, no matter how enormous it is. He compares the tongue to a burning forest fire, like a spark that starts a fire that literally causes incredible destruction. And I just want to side note, I just want to encourage us as a church family that we are reminded that our tongues literally have the power of life and death. God's just reminded me this last week that um, I'm probably the most careless with my tongue amongst those who I am closest to, which is my own family. And that I should be most careful with my tongue with those that God has given me the greatest responsibility for discipleship. God reminded me that my sons, I have three sons, that they are the greatest disciples I will ever raise up. That they are the chief disciple, uh, disciplees that God has entrusted to me. And that I should be very careful in the way that I use my tongue and the way in which I talk with them, that my words literally share life and death. And I want to remind you of that when you're uh, with your missional community at Family Meal and when you're with friends and you're talking about one another, that we would 
always seek to speak as if the person that we're talking about was in the room. If we wouldn't say it to them face to face, that we just wouldn't say it at all, and that we would be people who are filled with grace, overflowing with love, that we would be very gracious, just like the person who has removed the log from their own eye before they go and remove the splinter from their friend's eye, they realize the pain that it caused them in removing the log from their own eye, they'll be very careful and gracious and loving in the way that they would rebuke or remove a very small splinter from a friend's eye. Our tongues are so very powerful. I think also that the psalmist could be referring to the Lord's sharp arrows, the judgment that the Lord will bring. As he talks about uh, the wood of the broom tree, the psalmist seems to be comparing the Lord's coming judgment to a warrior's sharp arrows tipped with glowing coals of charcoal that burn red hot. And why does God bring judgment like that? To punish people? No. God brings judgment in such a way because He is just and it is His opportunity to call them to repentance. God's judgment is always an opportunity for repentance. The psalmist ends with saying, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. What's the psalmist saying? He's talking about two different tribes. Uh, Mesek, a far-off tribe thousands of miles from Palestine in southern Russia. Kadar, a wandering Bedouin tribe of barbaric people along Israel's border. Both of these groups of people, they represent the strange and the hostile And the psalmist is saying that the world is not my home. I want out. I don't want to live amongst these people anymore. But surprisingly and strangely, the Lord doesn't take him out. Yet remember, the psalmist said, The Lord, in my distress, I call the Lord. And the Lord answered my prayer. How does the Lord answer his prayer if he doesn't remove him from these people? God answers the psalmist's problems, not by delivering him from his problems, but by delivering him from himself. By instructing him to trust in the Lord. The psalmist anticipates justice, but he doesn't take matters into his own hands. Instead, he pursues peace. As Christians, we are called to live in such a way that we would trust in the justice of God. That we would not take up our own swords in order to bring about justice on our own. Romans 12, 17 through 19 reminds us, repay no one evil for evil. And you know what? Let me stop right there. Repay no one evil for evil. Do you realize how often we do this? I was at a soccer game yesterday and uh, there was a friend who was, we were talking about neighbors and they were, they were talking about the way in which, oh yeah, well, when those college students are up late partying until 2 in the, at night, I'm just like, uh, I'm going to be up at 5.30 in the morning and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honk my horn on the way to work. Like, I'm going to wake you up. Like, we repay evil for evil so often, or at least we have the desire to. And in Romans 12, 17 through 19, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The psalmist has come to a place in which he has come to realize that his hope is not in the world that is around him. And his hope is not in the fact that God will always come through and that God will always rescue and miraculously change his very circumstances in front of his eyes. His hope is in the fact that he is a pilgrim. That's the whole aspect of the Psalms of Ascent, that they are people who are on a pilgrimage. Do you know what a pilgrimage is like? People make pilgrimages to our city every year. Yeah, Elvis lovers, they come and they make a pilgrimage to Memphis and they go to Graceland and they light candles. You laugh. Have you been down there? They light candles and they weep and they cry and they wail. But pilgrims, they're on a journey and they have a distinct purpose and direction and place in mind. And Christians, man, I remind you that we're on a journey and that we're to be reminded that this world is not our home. And that means, quite honestly, that some of you just need to turn the news and the radio off. And you need to shut your mouths. And you need to come to understand and to believe that God, in His providence, will place whomever He desires and He wills in the White House. And it is up to Him. And we are to support that man or that woman, and we are to pray for them. And we are to desire good for our land. But we are also to understand that there is no person nor party nor candidate who is or ever will be the hope for America. That our hope is found in Jesus and in Him alone. And for some of us who would rant and rave and would try to solve political issues, it's not that politics are not important, they are. But that we would seek to see that peace ultimately and only comes through the person of Jesus that we wouldn't get so worked up with the war that is around us. Yes, there is war, but our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the work that's already been done on our cross. Our hope is in the resurrection. I want to end with a quote from Eugene Peterson. And I, I want to just ask that as we look at this psalm in Psalm 120, that we would end today by examining our hearts before the Lord. And I know that this isn't a message that, you know, it's not going to be trending by Joel's messages on, on iTunes. I get that. But I think that there's great encouragement in this text because what the psalmist is doing is he's creating space in our hearts in order that when we then look at some of the other psalms and we address things like our work, when we address things like how we rest and trust in the Lord for Sabbath, when we address questions like, where does our joy come from? and How do we receive blessings? How do we be a blessing to others? It's only when we really come to terms with Psalm 120 that we really come to see that it is God who brings us to a point of repentance. That's what this psalm is all about. It's about uncovering the lie of believing that anything in this world could really provide happiness or could provide hope outside of Jesus. Now, by the way, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom because fall's on the way, right? And fall's on the way and summer heat is going to go away and the mosquitoes are going to slowly die and we're all going to be like, yes, the colors of fall. 
And when we see those colors of fall and when we rejoice at weddings and next weekend when we celebrate in believers' baptism and we taste barbecue and we say, praise the Lord for barbecue and banana pudding, let it be a reminder to us that as good as it is, that they're all gifts from God. Let them be spiritual markers that point us to heaven. And that when we taste banana pudding and when we taste barbecue and when we sit outside this fall at a football game and enjoy tailgating, let it be a reminder that as we rest and as we recreate, that we do it all in light of our Savior who gives us good gifts, who is even better than any of the things that we would come to experience. And let us put our hope not in those things that are created, but in the one who is creator. Eugene Peterson ends in this way, and I have it as a quote for you. He says, Rescue me from the lies of advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire. From the lies of entertainers who promise a cheap way to joy. From the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct me in power and morality from the lies of psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals so that I will live long, happily, and successfully, from the lies of religionists who heal the wounds of this people lightly, from the lips of moralists who pretend to promote me to the office of captain of my fate, from the lies of pastors who leave the commandment of God and hold fast the traditions of men. Rescue me from the person who tells me of life and omits Christ, who is wise in the ways of the world and ignores the movement of the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, this day, may we make room in our lives for repentance. May we make room for Jesus. Jesus, whenever you call us back to yourself, whenever we leave the thing that we have worshipped, it is painful. It's not easy. It's a process. We're at war. But Jesus, when we come to worship you as king and to recognize you for your glorious grace has been offered to us, When we put our hope in you, Jesus, you bring joy and you bring life. Father, today, may we turn away from the things that are created that we have placed our hope in. Father, may we realize that repentance isn't a feeling, but repentance is a choice in which we choose to worship you, to acknowledge you, to allow our hearts to rejoice in you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you, God, that you give the greatest gift. You've given us Jesus. You've given us the Holy Spirit. May we walk in the peace that you and you alone can offer us. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we sing.